Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the program. My name is Michael Anthony Ingram, and I'd like to welcome my very special, special guest tonight, Heather Corbley Bryant. Heather, are you with me? I am. How are you tonight, Heather? I'm fine, thanks. And thanks for having Great. me. Welcome. Yes, welcome back for another time on the program. You're a very favorite person to be with us, and I'm so glad you're here. Me too. All right. So what I'd like to do is to turn the program over to you. All right. Well, I think this is, I've lost track, either my third or my fourth time on this show, yes. and it's a great privilege to be here. And I thought I'd just start by saying that some of you who are listening know this about me, but I write a poem a day, and I have done so for 17 years. And I did the math today, and I'm up to 6,295 poems. So I'm going to share a few of you, a few with you tonight. And the first uh, few I'm going to read are from my ninth book, which is called Practicing Yoga in a Former Shoe Factory. And I'm going to read the title poem from that collection. And people have mixed feelings about this, but I like to explain a little bit about my poems before I start. And this um, is from a yoga class I took in a literally a former shoe factory in Natick, Massachusetts, Spirit Bear Yoga, which unfortunately is one of the businesses that has not made it. And so this poem is partly in honor of that business, Spirit Bear Yoga. So looking up, I see a white tin painted ceiling high above. I seem to be floating far away. Stencil vines arranged in a pleasing pattern. It's all a matter of breathing, or so the yoga teacher says. Inhaling, exhaling, letting your mind rest. That is a place where I am not at my best. Bringing hands to heart, then to chest, pressed, thumbs raised skywards. In the olden days, as I say to my students, People did not need to take classes to learn how to rest. Life was simply not that complex. Work and then sleep. Now we are not so sure of the difference between the two. Responsibilities follow us everywhere. I think of factory clocks, tolling quarters of hours, time after time. Now we cannot let our minds ease. We live in a cacophony of not enough peace. Chaos, you might say. Namaste, we say, as in another time we might once have prayed. And the next poem I'm going to read is called America is Burning, Los Angeles, August 1965. And this is a poem in in honor of my father, who was an early person believing in injustice, and he was always Um, teaching me to see injustice. America is burning, was what my father said to five-year-old me as we stood atop a hillside overlooking Los Angeles. I could see big smoke bellowing and blowing far beneath, but I couldn't make out any flames. My father hoisted me atop his shoulders so I could see red tangerine and orange in the city below. America is burning, he repeated, shaking his head. America is burning, and he wanted me to see the devastation hatred could cause. Now we might say he was passionate about social justice. He had seen firsthand what happened in Munich in 1933 when he attended one of Hitler's rallies as an exchange student to see what the fuss was about. He came back afraid, afraid for the world, resigning from his fraternity, afraid for what he saw coming, 
This morning, when I read the news of hate crimes on the rise in this country, I heard his voice saying, America is burning again. This is, this is I think, my longest collection. So I'm going to read um, a few more from this one. And this poem is called In Plain Sight. And my kids, I have three kids who are very dear to my heart. This, this book is dedicated to them. And sometimes I don't read a poem in honor of all of them, which is not good. So uh, I have, I'm going to read several for my kids. But this one is for all of them together. It's called In Plain Sight. Where does hope reside? In my daughter's infectious laugh, her smile echoing through the phone, in her brother's long strides, his determination to make right all that he can, in my youngest son's humor. That's a non-starter, Mom, he'll say, in the kindest way. I have reclaimed my life in hope and peace. I have made room to let love in where it can thrive again. Broken promises leave us bereft. Lies and attacks keep us defensive. Disparage is a strong word. Lies of omission can be just as harmful as sins of omission. Once again, I am cast back onto my power to believe I can see what is already in plain sight. And then um, I'm an only child and I lost both my parents which is sort of orphan-like in some ways. And I, they're buried at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Concord where Hawthorne and Thoreau and Emerson and Alcott all are. And my parents are below the author's ridge. And I often go to see them. So this is for them. To the cemetery, Sleepy Hollow. No one else is here but me. At least as far as the eye can see, the cemetery is free free for thought, free of visitors today. My parents here before me. Through a crook in the Kusa dogwood, the one in full bloom when my father died, I see their graves, names engraved, together again. Although for a long while, it was only my father until my mother joined him at last. She wanted to see him again, though I'm not sure what she believed in, if anything. Today, skies are filled with a heaviness of impending rain, full of early darkness and time for Thanksgiving. Even the dogs are quiet here. I sit on the frozen ground, putting down my bag, planning to stay a while. I chat with them. There are two souls elsewhere. I will visit soon again, I say. And then this is a poem that came out of a fishing trip. I'm really a fisher person, but I did go on a fishing trip called The Triggerfish Gets a Talking To. Sean, the fisherman, does not like these fish. They swarm our little ship. He curses and swears. The females fare somewhat better than the males. He believes in corporal punishment, at least for the fish, because he whacks the black and purple fins across his boat's edge before tossing them back, leaving the lucky ones confused, circling, trying to orient themselves in these turquoise waters. Some of the less fortunate ones end up on their back, eyes open, like T.S. Eliot's Phoenician. I fear for their death, their wantonness. She devils, he calls them. They get a talking to, like his wife. Thank you, Heather. We'll be right back.
am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Heather Corbley Bryant. The call-in number is 646-787-1631. If you have a question for Heather, I have a question for Heather. Heather, are you ready okay. for a question? <laughs> You've written over 6,000 poems. Does writing energize or exhaust you? Um, that's a great question. I think writing definitely energizes me. And I would say that not writing is much harder than writing. Mm. If that makes sense. I think not writing. Break that down. Break that down for me. What do you mean? Okay. So getting to a place where I can write makes me feel very energetic. Getting there is hard. And if I can't get to that place, then I feel as I don't have as much energy. Okay. All right. Well, when you think about being a writer, we just talked about getting there is potentially the most difficult part of the the process. What is the most difficult part of the artistic process? Is it getting there or is there something else that holds you back that you find difficult? Um, well, certainly getting there. And then I used to have a really hard time with revision. I used to hate it and avoid it. And I find that it's kind of slipped into my process. So when I write now my poems, I write them in longhand. And I don't even go back and look at them for a while. And then after a certain amount of time has passed, I go back to them and I type them up, and as I type them, I change them. And I sometimes I don't even realize I'm doing that. And for tonight, I copied out a few in longhand that are very new that I already changed. So I've kind of, I think I've kind of tricked myself into revision. Seamus well, King said that. <laughs> yeah, Seamus King okay. said that. Um, sorry, revision is sweet. And I'm starting to see that more. Okay. Well, that brings up another question then. And thank you. I'm glad that you brought that up. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much else you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. So, again, what is your take on that? Is it like a living creature? Oh, it's definitely a living creature. Um, but I think you can shape it and change it and get it. I, I think I do more tinkering, get at the essence of the poem. I think every poem has an essence, and the trick of revision is is to get that essence, to reveal the essence, which you can't. Sometimes it takes more than one try to do that. All right. Please share some more of your work. Sure. So I'm I'm going to share a few more from Practicing Yoga. Uh, This one's called Queen Anne Cherries. Round globes of fruit sweet to the center, firm case, stem where it had once been connected to the vine, should it have been so, orbs of plenty, beauty, strong, plum wine colored, sweet in summer harvest towards the middle of July, Pink hearts of sweetness, you bite in through the skin, pit comes out clean, plucked to the touch, tart, multi-hued, speckled red and white inside. In sheer loveliness we start. I see a hill of trees and bursts of mayflower. You make the purity of the first to taste, to enjoy, to savor, to linger over as we feel just who we might be on our way to becoming. And then this is, uh, to balance a summer poem, I have a a winter poem. This is, um, I never really thought thought much about how holly grows. And we once lived in a house with a lot of holly bushes. And it was wonderful just to pick whole stems in them. So holly bushes, holly hedges bloom with pinpricks of vermilion. Sticky branches wind their way, needing to be tamed. A row of blue spruces grown tall. Below, yet more trees. Pear, I think. Still full with copper leaves bearing the shape of their fruit. 
Morning mist descends, thickening into valley, the edges of our terrain wedged into a hilly crevice, part of the Appalachian chain, sharp rocks rising out of soil, where I begin again. And then I'm going to read, I've spent a lot of time in Ireland, and it's a place where I feel very able to write poetry, I think, because there's a strong poetic tradition there. Um, So I'm going to read an Irish poem, a poem written in Ireland, I should say, called uh, On Keel Beach, Aco Island. And there's an epigram, Why Not Say What Happened, which is from Caroline Blackwood. And this is a a layered poem. Um, I wrote it on Aco Island, which is an island off the west coast of Ireland that's very desolate. And I was writing it about a love story, and a layered love story in my life. We were so young then, I 21 and you a mere 26 when we fell in love. Sweet green afternoons, cut grass wafted through your wide open windows. We drank beer and jumped off a pier at Squam Lake. We stayed up all night before the solstice, wondering if we were star-crossed lovers. My parents disapproved. You were not yet divorced. I was torn between heart and mind. We stayed up late reading Yeats, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Carol Muskie Duke, Robert Fitzgerald, and Andre Dubuque. You told me I would be a good teacher, maybe a writer too. I was easily dissuaded, persuaded by others. I broke up with you in a cruel letter posted from Oxford, the one letter I wish I'd never sent. When it arrived, you told me you played always on my mind over and again, a record turning on the table, telling me I broke your heart. Later, I would understand I had broken my own heart as well, but I didn't know that then a lifetime between what we once knew and what we later understood. On the day of your divorce, you called me from a payphone at the Salem courthouse. I didn't know what to say. Three and a half decades later, we remembered what was once said and what could not be unsaid. You sent me a dozen red roses to my office. I blushed on their arrival. I was too young or foolish or both to know what real love was, and so we left it. We both went on to inhabit other lives until we again remembered our sweet young love, the way mowed grass smelled on June afternoons. I sent you poems, you answered them. I divorced, then you. We danced around each other, too unsure to trust again, to begin anew. Until that mid-December evening when we met at Lemon Thai and laughed the restaurant closed, and you watched me walk to my car until you showed up with one red rose and ice melt at my door. And then I'm going to read some um, poem called The Laws of Physics Do Not Explain Everything. And my father always told me, told me I should have taken physics in college, and I had this suspicion that I would understand the world better if I had taken physics. I didn't. So, the laws of physics do not explain everything. We are lying in bed. Ours is not to reason why. Why is it so good between us? Perhaps there's too much to be understood. Some laws do not explain everything, you say, like how one thing can affect the movement of another thing, even when the two objects are not touching, are not even in close proximity. Just as I turn on my left side to go to sleep, you reach your warm hand to cut my body, to let us know, to let me know you are there, that in ways neither of us understands, in fact, you have always been there, as have I. And then I'm going to read, oh gosh, part of the problem now is I have so many poems it gets a little overwhelming. I recently moved, and I am realizing that I am starting to have more notebooks than I have space for. So a recurring theme, I realize, is, is about women and how women make art. So I'm going to read a poem in that vein. It's called Crevices. 
Like okra lichen growing in crevices between rocks, a woman's art seeds itself, choosing private spaces, places hidden from ordinary view, offering a glimpse of beauty among what must be accomplished in the everyday. Artists of the past, Emily Dickinson, Virginia Woolf, Mary Cassatt, they had no children, sometimes neither husband nor lover either. They were left each day with a blank canvas, the white paper where they inscribed their rage, recording what was glorious to them and also most dangerous. I remember Yeats's dictum, perfection of the life or the art, one must choose, one but not the other. I call to mind waves crashing on rocks, water receding without noise, rushing, swirling, following ocean's force, its retreat opening fissures and rock, gaps between liquid and solid, stone and water, the most barren of all settings on earth, where one spot of lichen brightens yellow and green after low tide. And then the the last poem I'm going to read in this set is called um, Gibbous Moon, and there's an allusion to my daughter in here. Round white paper lantern hanging behind a trail of pink clouds like feathers spread out from a pillow. As twilight comes, clouds pass, turning to lavender cheer until they fled stage right. Moon rises high and fast. By supper's end, twilight has fallen, crepuscular and thin. Not a speck of down remains. Just one round satellite presides, Phoebus in her gibbous phase. Thank you, Heather. You mentioned the word art. What does being creative mean to you? Um, well... I can take a while to answer. How long do you have? Oh, hey, for you. <laughs> the moon. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think, um, well, if I had to say, you know, to answer that question directly, mm-hmm. I would say it, it makes living, it, it's become entwined with living for me. Like, I can't imagine not making art. I think it's a way of um, responding to the world and trying to understand what I can't understand and trying to make something beautiful out of everything that's around us. I mean, both beautiful and terrible at the same time. But it's, it's, I think it's a way of being in the world now and you know, people talk about having, like, a yoga practice, and I'm, like, that's pretty far from what I actually do with yoga, but I think I think of a poetry practice as a way of um, apprehending the world. Hmm. Very nice. What do you think has been the best advice you've ever been given about being more creative? Well... <laughs> It's funny, I think of, um, I've only taken one creative writing course in my life. Um, really? Wow. And, yeah, and I don't know how much, I learned some things in it, but I, I've i kind of written poetry always in the margins, in my notebooks, on the sides of things. And I think the best advice I got, which is what started me on this poem a day quest, was literally an article I read in Reader's Digest, which said, if you want to be a poet, write a poem a day. And I think it was also in that article, something about lowering your standards. And I think that that was really helpful to me, that just to take down the stakes and say, just writing is writing and separating it from grading or categorizing or saying this is good writing and this is bad writing. But I think the freedom to write is really what inspired me. That that was the best advice. It sounds kind of silly, but just to write, because that's really the only way you can figure out how to write. Hmm. 
well, we know that you've conquered the field of poetry. <laughs> which creative <laughs> which creative medium would you love to pursue but haven't? I would love to pursue, I mean, I've written academic books, um, well, one book, many articles, and obviously, if you know, poetry, what we're talking about now. Um, I wrote a work of creative nonfiction about my grandmother, um, but she was such a towering figure that she was actually hard to write about. I would like to write a memoir. That's what I've been playing around with during the pandemic. A lot of my poems are kind of mini like glimpses into memoir, and I'm working now on stringing a narrative of a memoir together. I have tried fiction, and I have written five books that are in my closet, um, which I'm actually too scared to reread because I'm scared they're really awful and that I can't write fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. As you think about your craft, and again, I believe you've conquered it, what kind of creative patterns, routines, or rituals do you have? Um, I'm kind of superstitious about pens. I have a lot of pens. I'm always in search of the right pen. And at the moment, I think the Pilot Razor Point is the best pen. A lot of writing is very tactile for me, so... My ritual would be that I have to have a notebook and it has to be thin ruled. It can't be thick. But I don't like how the words look that way. And then pilot pen. And um, what I do for a ritual is I, I set myself a certain amount of time that I can't do anything else for. I have an app on my phone called Flora and set it for 25 minutes. And for those 25 minutes, I can't do anything else. And usually what happens is I'm kind of restless and I can't get started and I want to do other things. But if I check my phone with that app on, it says I've killed a tree and then I feel really bad. So I I don't do that. (laughs) I make it. I don't touch it anymore. And I just sit with it until something happens. And, And usually within about 10 minutes, I'm writing and then... Um, then I don't want to stop. So it's, it's, the trick is, is finding that space. Um, and I, I don't have a – I try to write in the morning because I think that works better, but sometimes it's, it's very much haphazard and it happens at an unexpected time in the day. All right. Please share some more of your work. Okay. So I'm going to move on to – my 10th book, which I can plug a little bit, it'll be coming out um, in the summer of 2021. And um, I have a poem for my daughter. It's called Lives of a Shell. And it comes out of a trip to North Carolina to the Outer Banks. Can I come too? My daughter asked. Together we walk over boardwalk down steps sifted with sand to where water laps the land. So simple. Earth, water, air. By habit or inclination, she seeks miniature clams hiding under holes until she has collected two handfuls. We make a haiku. Brown feet squelch heavy and we head to a higher dry spot on the beach. Usually I walk the stretch alone but now I have company. Here is my hope for you. I whisper a silent wish in this place where I first heard these magical words over the phone when the genetic specialist at a hospital in Boston said, congratulations, you're going to have a daughter. 46, XX. And we used to spend a lot of time on the Outer Banks of North Carolina and I I think the fragile stretch of land is it's obviously very imperiled and it's very beautiful. So this is called Carolina Moon. It's also from that place in time. When you stand outside your life for an instant, you might be able to see something as if for the first time. 
curving roads, stony walls, green apple trees leafing over into crisp newness of autumn. And then, in memory, you shut your eyes, waiting for dusk, on the sand-swept barrier islands where you finally see everything. What you once thought was yours, all of it is not. You thought you were the snail carrying your life's belongings on your back. You return to the fragments to realize that when you are not looking, everything has slipped away from you, has slipped off your back and been taken away, mostly not by you. All that was precious, true, is gone. Against the sky stretched out full and clear, an orange disk of a crescent moon is rising, eclipsing the orb shadows leaving behind what was once made and then remade in hope and in blind trust. Looking at the sliver of what remains behind you, you realize that once you leave, you can never again return to this place. The most dangerous time for a woman is the time when her abuser realizes she might leave. The second most dangerous time is the first three months after she leaves for the first time. And then I have a poem. Um, my first two children are twins, and my son is eight minutes older than my daughter, and that was a fact that he came to a poetry reading and learned that he thought he'd only, that he was only seven minutes older, and at the reading he found out he was eight minutes, and he's very happy about that. So this was for him, my oldest child, by eight minutes, almost. They rushed you away moments after your early arrival in that bright white hospital delivery room. I knew something had gone wrong, but I had another baby to birth after pains to ride through, a ruptured placenta and a hemorrhage to endure. Hours later, in darkness, I caught first sight of you, splayed on your tiny bed, spread out like a miniature eagle captured on a table, splints on your wrists with minuscule needles stuck in your thimble-like arms, an ivy in your head, your blue knitted cap pushed to the side. I wanted you swaddled, cuddled like a newborn, not displayed like a specimen. Through my medicine-laced eyes, I cataloged what I could see, leafy green ferns hanging from the ceiling, nurses with polished red nails clicking around, checking tubes, writing on charts, I couldn't yet hold your fish body that night, but if I promised to rest, they said, maybe I would be lucky the next. And then and the group, I'm grouping all the children poems together. This is for my youngest, in case he's listening. It's called The Line Turned Blue. Long before the line turned blue, I began to imagine you, conceived in a march with two moons. First I was sleepy, then sick, by turns, excited and terrified. Your cells multiplied inside me faster than I could imagine. I first saw your face in June. You were lying crosswise, floating in fluid, sleeping. Still, I wouldn't feel you much. Just a little flip now and then. You were quiet, sleepy, just as you were that Sunday morning. It was dark when I went into labor with you, and it was darkness again by the time you were born. The nurse called you a sleepy boy. Then I knew you were you. You turned blue when they put you on my chest for the first time. They pounded on your heels until you breathed again. Your first night on earth you cried, filled with the terror and wonderment of being alive. I held you, and we too fell asleep until pink dawn began to rise in Boston over the slice of the TD garden I could see from my room. And then, then I'm going to read um, some poems from uh, the the Orchard Days poem collection. I've done something different. I have obviously about an orchard when we lived in an orchard, and I've interspersed poems about apples and orchards throughout the volume. So it's my first attempt to do something like that, and I copied my friend Mary Maydeck in Ireland, who... Um, has a beautiful book called The Egret Has Landed and News from Other Parts, and she interspersed poems about the egret. 
So it's, it's something new that I'm trying. And so this one is called Winter Orchard. In late afternoon haze, almost dusk, a herd of deer grazed on fallen apples lying underneath the snow, newly fallen. If we listen closely, we can almost hear them crunch. They shimmer in the distance, their bodies folding into the mirage that becomes twilight. I wonder how they are related one to the other and whether they live on this hill, roaming from one orchard to the next. There is no stag with them tonight, perhaps only two fawns standing alone, their mothers close by. And then... um, The last poem I'm going to read in the set is called, Were There Deer in the Garden of Eden? I wonder, were there deer in the Garden of Eden? Did they trample through grass, picking up a stray apple from Eve's grass? Were there deer in the Garden of Eden? Did they wander free and clear? Did they wait for Eve to give the signal? If all of life is spent attempting to conform to a false idea, a fictional standard of perfection, then how can we say we are not avenged as sinners? If poetry is a form of prayer, how do we tell, as Yeats asked, the dancer from the dance? As deer wander in twilight, how do we know they are there if the mist is too thick to see through? A mirage comes upon us. When did we decide a woman was responsible for the seed of evil? We'll be right back. back. The call-in number is 646-787-1631. Heather, I have a question for you. Okay. All right. (laughs) Do you come from a literary background? It's kind of funny. I actually just spent this last weekend going through um, about over 100 years of family papers, and it's overwhelming. So, yes, I'm really a third-generation writer. My maternal grandmother from whom I got the Corbley, Irene Corbley Kuhn, was a journalist who covered the Lindbergh kidnapping, among other events. So she was a writer, wrote a screenplay, a couple of uh, autobiographies, two autobiographies, and many, many, many years and years and years of journalism, many journal articles, newspaper articles, and and her daughter, my mother, um, Reen Kuhn Bryant, um, was a novelist who wrote two novels before she was 30, um, published by Random House, and both very successful, and then continued to write short stories and nonfiction, but did not publish as much after I was born, which I always felt guilty about, but maybe I slowed her down. Um, and then my father was for about 25 years, was director of Harvard Libraries. So um, he handed me a copy of David Copperfield when I was six and told me that I had to read it. Um, and I hated it. <laughs> so I guess the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> well, what did, what did you learn about writing from them? What did you learn about this 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 thing we call writing? Well, I learned that they knew a lot of people who seemed to do it. Um, okay. You know, I learned that 
we often went to people's houses where there were a lot of books and where writing was discussed. But I think one of my strongest memories and something that I connected with writing was my next-door neighbor when I was growing up was Frank Moorcross, who's a Dead Sea Scroll scholar, and he actually baptized me and all three of my children. He was a Presbyterian minister as well as a biblical scholar. He's one of the Dead Sea Scroll scholars. And I could see his study from my bedroom, and I would look out, and I would see him you know, burning what I thought was the midnight oil. It probably was like 8 o'clock. And I remember he would often come over. He was very close friends with our family, and he would come over, and he would remember one night he said, I think I've discovered the origins of the letter Z. And I thought, I want to do that. Like, I think that looks really cool, <laughs> what he does. <laughs> so I think I learned that writing was a, a living thing that happened, you know. I mean, I would see books, obviously lots of books. and But I beyond that, there was this idea that writing was a process that happened around us. All right. Well, please share more of your work. Sure. So I'm going to share a few new poems. Um, they're very new. Uh, they've all been written since the pandemic. And um, several of my favorite writers have passed away during the pandemic. Um, and I wanted to read one in honor of Avon Bolin, who died last spring, who was one of my absolute top poets. I was looking out at April leafy snowflakes falling on new green sprouts of a pear tree when news of her sudden death in Dublin reached me. She was the first person I heard put woman and poet in the same breath, daring to say the unspeakable, breathing difficult life into the intangible. Part of my pantheon of imaginative sprites who guide me away from darkness towards light. I read her poem, First Year, in The New Yorker, where she asked, where is the soul of a marriage? And after, read everything else I could, her poems comforted me through years of birthing, nursing, writing by lamplight after midnight. She guided me through the crevices of alphabets and landscapes, known and unknown. I would imagine her writing alone in her suburban airy, putting down words as fast as she could in the midst of April flakes falling. And then this is another poem I, I wrote recently. Um, and I loved going to Seamus Heaney's readings because he would often read new work. And it was a privilege to hear his work and then to see it later and what he'd done with it. He, I think he was probably the first person who convinced me of the value of revision. So this is a poem that I I sent to you, Michael, to, for publicity, and I, I even changed it today when I copied it out again. It's a little bit different than the version you have. All right. About the October wasps. A few Sundays ago, the wasps headed out of town, deserting the paper nest they had constructed to last the summer through August at least until Labor Day. All summer long, they buzzed around, but recently they struck the set left its layers and tatters hanging down. They flew away, the gray shards stripped, flapping in the wind, hanging off the corner of our house. A few stray wasps stayed around, left behind. By chance or choice, they hissed, angry at their desertion, like the birds left behind along the great migration. Still, the herding must go on, a lifetime's worth of cruelty. Betrayal concentrated in a single season. Now the wasps flee, the few lost ones ready to sting. They are not feeling the autumn calm, only the sting of abandonment. And then the next poem I'm going to read is having a wonderful kind of rebirth and a new experience for me. I It's part of a series of poems that were commissioned um, by the Old Frog Pond Farm in Harvard, Mass., which is a wonderful place for art and farming. And I wrote a poem for a celebration there this summer, and a woman who heard me read it 
whose name is Lily. I can't possibly pronounce her name properly in Indian. Um, but she has just translated my poem into Hindi, and I'm immensely grateful to her for doing that. And I feel it's, it's the first poem I've heard of mine in translation, and it was really thrilling. Um, so I'm going to read it. It's called Sitting at the Solstice Under the Japanese Maple Tree. Sitting beneath green feathered leaves with our cutout shapes underneath a canopy of grace, a cooling welcome today when it's 90 degrees in the shade. The experience of being. The sign out front says, Black lives matter today, now, always. Besides slow turtle crossing, slow children playing. The places we drive by, both haunted and tainted by our lives. We could spend a lifetime redoing everything. Feathered green leaves. Casting dappled shadows on my bare white legs, sitting beside the farm stand, selling garlic scapes, strawberries, and kale. Where do we plant our shoots and cuttings? It is the beginning of grace to retrace our roots. Though we can never recoup the shootings, the lies, the violence, beneath the canopy of desire, flying on the wings of hope and deed. We can learn from this new beginning, breathing the grace of longing and belonging. We can only start again from where we are just now. And then I'm going to read, I I have a lot of poems about the pandemic. And when I was looking through what I wanted to read for today, I, I had a lot and I want to honor that this time, but I also didn't want to overwhelm people at a time when we're all already overwhelmed. So I've been trying to find ways to write about it, um, to to try to comprehend what's happening. So this is called Saqqara. In Egypt, archaeologists have found decorated coffins, some containing mummies and statues in Saqqara, Placed in the earth over 2,000 years ago, they have stayed intact, preserved, a glorious resting place for those who could afford it, the beauty of death celebrated, the launching commemorating a journey to the underworld. And yet, and yet, for those who cannot afford these resting places, death comes in droves, bodies left in morgue, freezer, trucks, no goodbyes to be said in person. Sorrow fills our screens. Loved ones sing, plead, bear witness, wait. Every American knows someone who has had the virus. A third of us knows someone who has died. When will this knowing end? And then I'm going to read one more, um, which is another orchard poem. It's called August Orchard Days. At this close of August, I strain against the edge of uncertainty. Darkness comes sooner now. Days blur by. And I know much less than I thought I might by now. What I hold can fit in one palm. One ripe golden apple has fallen from our tree by the driveway. It drops into the sandy road leading to our house. For now, we catch nettles chokes, perhaps sidestepping the worst. And I guess I have, I have one more poem I'm going to read from, from this set uh, called East Bear Hill Pond. And it's the name of the pond in the town we used to live in. And it's where my kids grew up. And I think that um, from what I can tell, moms often have a kind of eternal attachment to the place where their children were young. And this is also, I hope, a healing poem about water. East Bear Hill Pond. All summer long, we've come to this pond, the four of us. We've seen the blue heron swoop down, spoon his wings, flutter in awkwardness before he lands on lily pads. Opening now with still yellow flowers, almost blue water. Cottages ring the shore reaching out to islands dotted on rocky spots, 
scattered through the rippling wake. Swim lessons, pick up games of pickle, diving off second raft, waiting for the return of the ice cream truck to lick sweet strawberry coconut concoctions. The bell rings, announcing its arrival. On our penultimate morning here, I smell ripening grapes on vines. It is no longer our time. Let's spend a moment discussing your new book, Orchard Days, which will be available in January 2021. Am I correct? I actually, sorry, a little bit later. Um, it'll be, I think, I hope the, the spring or summer of 2021. Okay, okay. Yeah. Where does this book fit into your career as a writer? Where does it fit into your career? Well, um, as I mentioned before, the, the overwhelming nature of how much I've written <laughs> sometimes presses down upon me. So what I decided to do was go back to um, when I first, the the years when I first started writing poems, which was starting in 2003, and I started looking through my notebooks from that time, and I started seeing themes and connections, and so I decided that I wanted to make volumes based around sequences of my life. So, Orchard Days is is the first one in that sequence, and I have. Um, the poems in it date, there's a few more recent ones, but they mostly date from 2003 to 2005. So I'm imagining Orchard Days as the first in a new sequence of poems. And I've thought of the the following volumes, if they see the light of day, which would be, um, the next one would be Valleys and um, the next one after that would be stone walls, and the one after that would be the importance of lakes. And oh, wow. <laughs> so there's a lot more to go. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more to go. What What did you learn when writing the book? What did you learn? I thought a lot about sequence. Um, in graduate school, I studied the sequence that I admire, Elliot in particular, and Yates and Stevens. And pound, and I, I decided, as I mentioned, that I that I wanted to think of a, a book that cohered in a different way. So, a lot of my other books have been organized around time or place, and this time I decided that I wanted to intersperse a, a kind of inner narrative of the sequence of the Orchard poems that then would be surrounded by this outer narrative. So. I think what I learned, I learned a lot about how how much placement of poems matters and how poems draw different meanings from the ones they're around, just the way colors look different depending on what colors they're near. And I also learned something that um, another friend of mine in Ireland, Joan McBreen, is a beautiful poet herself. She She's a very good editor and she is very big on taking out any extra words. And I could almost hear her voice saying, do you need that word? No. So I, I tried to make my poems a little bit sparer in that way. What surprised so, you the most? What surprised you the most? In writing that book? Yes. Um, I think what, what surprised me... Uh, kind of terrified me and also delighted me was that I, as you can probably tell from tonight, I do return to many of the same themes, but I often write about them. And so I I think I learned that I have a lot of interior sequences that I I didn't realize I had. And that was exciting. You know, when a person reads your work, what do you hope readers get from encountering your poems? Hmm. That's, that's another wonderful question. That's great question. Um, I hope, I hope a couple of things. I hope sometimes that there can be a clarity that maybe somebody could see something 
more clearly in their own lives, kind of refracted from what I've written. Um, I hope that people get a sense of comfort. I, I think it's funny, one of my kids was saying that some of my poems are extremely dark, um, but I, I don't think of myself as a, as a dark person. So okay. I hope, I hope that they can bring comfort to people. I, I think what's been the most exciting part of writing poetry for me has been realizing that I can put words to all these things that turn inside my head all the time. And my great hope is that, you know, even, even one or two readers, that doesn't have to be very many in poetry, will find, find something of resonance that they can draw comfort or a strength or some sort of sustenance from maybe recognition. Mm-hmm. Will you favor us with one or two more before we go? You know, I can always read more poems. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a stupid question when I said it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I know. I know. Kind of absurd. I'm. I feel like I have a little cottage industry in my house. Um, <laughs> so I read one. Uh, this is called. It's another uh, orchard theme. Called orchards burning. A puff of smoke crosses the sky. Walking past, we see the new green coming now. Rows of stubs, stumps. Trees cut down. Apple wood piled high. Blue stretches tight, the road turns. We linger, looking at bonfires, gathering steam. Flames shooting out wildly now over the fields. Neighbors talk of the changes that are bound to come in time. There is always a builder lurking nearby, threatening to bulldoze orchards and pave the land with houses. And I would add to something that I that I hope readers can get from my work is I, I love language. I, I'm sort of drunk with language and I I love the idea of being able to play with language and I, I think that's why poetry delights me so much is you don't have to worry about how much sense it makes or how true it is. It, it can be a joyful um, use of language and, and I also for all the darkness, I, I also hope there's whimsy. So I, ha- I have a few poems that I think are whims- whimsical. And I'm going to read one. It's called Notes from the Space Station. The woman who has spent the longest consecutive sequence of time in space, over six and a half months, sends in her report. As much as possible, they tried to replicate life on Earth. Friday nights of her parties and whooping it up learning how gravity lets everything fall away as they entered orbit. Nothing like the rush of blackness, she said, something she would miss, even though she recognizes that the spaceship shell had aged beyond safety, like an old 747, with all the ancient dials and knobs. How like and unlike life on Earth it was. Most Saturdays they watched Groundhog Day. I just loved that idea that they were watching Groundhog Day in the space yeah. station. <laughs> Very and nice. Then, um, yeah, I'm going to read. Uh, I have time for probably one more, I think. Yes. Oh, yes, we did some time. We're good. Okay. So I'll read. Um, I also love with just listening to people talk and, and listening to language. And um, there's a village in England where I spent time. It's called Nether Winchenden, which I think is a perfect name for a village. Uh, Nether Winchenden, this village, this England, dream smell of mowing and cattle. Flies hum through the kitchen, cotton cloths protecting the cakes waiting for tea. Outside there, the church stands with solemnity making a pattern, a calendar for people to live by. Even song, matins. Who does the flowers now? Angela's in a frightful row with Phyllis. Where's the purple vase? 
No one would suspect this village of living in a nuclear age. Wildflowers grow now over the crusader steps. The lady of the manor protects her footpaths with a shotgun. This village, this England, this patch of green and certainty holds the past in its arms. At even hours, bells ring. Next year, they will mow spaces around the pillar box. In the afternoon, flies buzz. I shall the peas. Wow. You took us on a journey tonight, Heather. Oh, I tried. <laughs> Since we can't really you did. Anywhere. You did. <laughs> it's true. We can't. <laughs> true. We can't travel, but our minds can. Uh, That's right. I'd like to. Th- right. I'd like to thank you so much for being my guest. You're welcome back anytime you'd like to return. You're super talented. I want to thank you for sharing your gift with the world tonight. And be safe out there. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. And to our listening audience, we'll see you next time. Have a great week. Thank you. You have just listened to the Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio Podcast with your host, Dr. You have just listened to the Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio Podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode.